everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Sierra and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. So I think I'm going to start. I actually am recording now. This is Wayne Dorban, and I am live in Yuma, Arizona. And for some of you that came on a little bit early, it is 122 degrees outside right now, according to thermometer in my car and also one that I saw in another building. That's right, 122 degrees. <laughs> um, it was supposed to be 115, so maybe they even set some kind of a record today. Uh, I'm here doing something that I don't wish on my worst enemy, having dental work done. And I had two extractions today, about three hours ago. I still don't feel my nose. <laughs> um, if my speech is a little slurred, it has nothing to do with having been in the bar here at this hotel that I'm at. It has to do with literally the fact that my feeling is just coming back now in my mouth. Hopefully the pain doesn't come back too much. I've got stitches on both sides of my upper side of my mouth. And um, not the best day that I've had in a while. So anyway, Jeff, why don't you tell everybody where you're at and um, what you're doing. I know you're doing some exciting stuff over the, today and over the last couple of days. Yeah, pleased to be here, Wayne. Um, so I am live from Aarhus, Denmark. It is about 52 degrees and clear uh, this morning. 12.30 here in Aarhus, and I am here to attend a training with the Chaos Pilots School of Creative Leadership, and have been connecting with the research community in various areas of Europe, where actually Mark Shepard and I both we're in Montpellier for the European Agroforestry Conference. Um, and it's been excellent connecting with people here and bringing people together. So after this, I'll be headed more towards Southern Europe for the rest of my time. And looking forward to that. Awesome. Um, I was looking up on my screen, you guys should see it here, but how is Aarhus spelled? Tell us, Aarhus. A-A-R. A-what? A-R? A-A-R? Oh, I found it, I found it. Got it. So I'm going to put it up on the screen. Um, it's a really nice uh, city that I've never been to before. Um, they're actually going to be the European cultural capital of 2017, and so uh, they've got lots of signs all over the place for upcoming events. So there, there we have it on, on the screen. Everybody can look at it. Looks like we have a cool couple of photos over here. One looks like a really old historic building. 
But then a little further down, I don't know if we can see it. Look at this. What's this, Jeff? This is cool. Have you seen this yet? I haven't seen that. Um, that looks like, yeah, a design from, well, it could be from one of various Danish architects. Um, as the architecture is rather incredible. But what distinguishes uh, Denmark design for me is ease to move throughout the city by bicycle and walking, um, creating a high quality of life and ease to move through places. So it's a very pleasant to be, a very pleasant place to be for a short time. Cool. Yeah. So I'm being uh, attacked by a large dog. No, I'm just joking. It was a, a little one, but it was just running by me here. Um, so, Jeff, tell everybody a little bit about the, uh, the, the, the Euro conference you're at, and then tell everybody a little bit how Mark does his process of, and how really we do, um, by the way, just for everybody's benefit, Mark and Jeff and I are the partners now of a newly formed restoration agriculture development. And we have lots of incredibly cool things we're going to be doing and talking to you about in the future. Um, Jeff, for the last year and a half almost, has been doing most of Mark's scheduling and, and has been fortunate to be able to attend a number of things with Mark. Tell everybody how... Um, he schedules sort of an entire process for a given site, starting with kind of an initial workshop and taking it through, if it would go in that sort of optimal sort of way. Yeah, happy to go through that. Um, so as we begin, we always like to know what are the goals and the vision of um, the, the people that we're working with. That is so important as we move forward um, with any design and any conversation is to start where we are and understand the, the context in which we're working in, both from a personal standpoint and from an ecological standpoint. So once we have that basis and those conversations, we like to move forward with a site assessment. We want to merge your goals and your vision with the ecological reality and the successional pathways of the site. Understanding the problem areas and um, how the land is going to be managed. And moving through that, we decide what type of water management is necessary based on your goals and the soil conditions and the climate. Which water management is a key component of what we do. And we're a design and install company, so we do install systems as well and that will include installing earthworks 
for water management if necessary, like Mark has been doing the past couple days in Kentucky, as well as planting the trees and working with the clients to develop a plan that works for them and install that. And so oftentimes we combine our um, consulting services in workshops. So people are able to attend and learn by doing while we teach by demonstrating. Which makes for a more fun interactive process. So that's that's our our process in a nutshell. Cool, and we're, and I'm kind of showing it here on the screen, which is what we what we have on the homepage of our website. Um, so while we're waiting for Mark, let me just talk a little bit more. And I've said this the last three days now about what this session is is starting really, and then what it's going to continue to be. Mark is not only a partner at RAD, Restoration Agriculture Development, but he's also one of the what we call first-tier coach speakers for the Economic Action Team, which we really had our initial kickoff presentation for last night, yesterday, and the, the night before, actually, sort of ahead of the kickoff even, um, I spoke as a tier one coach um, on the topic area that I have some expertise in, which is um, aquaculture, water farming. Mark obviously has a huge amount of expertise in restoration agriculture. And as probably some of you know, this isn't a joke, you hear this a lot of times, but he's the guy who wrote the book. And uh, Jeff, we had an uh, exciting thing happen um, today that I'll let you talk a little bit about too, related to some interest that we're having for for translation of the book into multiple different languages. And, and, and even right now, we have a group that's very interested in Spanish, and I'll let Jeff talk about that in just a few minutes. But let me just talk a little bit more about um, just generally uh, the restoration agriculture model and then also the EAT model here. So let me start with that. Again, I said this is the start of a process. Mark has committed now as what we call a tier one coach to teach for um, as long as we keep this going on usually as much as a weekly basis. So you can plan on this time frame, 5.30 uh, central time, excuse me, 6.30 central time, 5.30 mountain time, on a weekly basis on Wednesdays that Mark will, will be teaching. And he is going to go through series, and he's already talked about that his first series will last maybe as long as 30 different presentations. Those will be both him coaching and teaching and you answering, excuse me, asking questions. And as time goes on, it won't just be you asking questions, but you'll also be involved in um, in networking and, and possibly even some teaching yourselves. Um, a couple of you that were on last night have already talked with me about through through emails about uh, potentially partnering in a little bit different way and talking to your group about this. 
um, this is a, a format that is unique in the green space broadly. We call it the colonomic space. But it's not unique just generally out in the, the, the world. And the internet marketing area has embraced this. And there's one particular group. I'm not going to say the name of it, actually. I don't want to really talk about that broadly to people who really don't care much about it. If you are interested in that group as a marketer, at some point you could just reach out to me separately and I'll talk to you about it. But that group, which I'm a member, I'm not one of the coaches or teachers. I'm actually like a lot of you are here. I'm a student and I'm a learner. But I'm not just a student wanting to learn. I actually have a marketing business, a pretty successful marketing business. I actually think I'm a pretty good marketer. Um, and I thought I knew a lot until I started taking um, this, um, this, this team approach. And um, I'll give you the acronym. The, the acronym of this group is called OMG. And OMG doesn't stand for, oh my god, it stands for one man gang. And that started three, a little over three years ago. And there are 12 tier one coaches, each of them that have specific expertise in a variety of different areas. Each of them teaches weekly, at least an hour, some of them two, some of them three. And then below them, there's a second tier of coaches and teachers who also teach weekly. And there's between 30 and 40 of them. So you can start to do the math for this particular entity. There's over 40 hours a week of teaching and mentoring and coaching. And that's our goal here. Um, it won't happen overnight. It's going to take some time. When OMG started, I actually talked with um, some of the founders today. And I asked, how many people did you have on your earliest of live events, your online events, your webinars? And they said 10, 20. Well, I was on one last night when there was um, 4,000 that were on. And it went viral after a time. Now, I don't ever expect that, well, we could maybe have 4,000. But it's easy to think about having hundreds or even up into the thousands. And Mar Jeffrey actually brought it up earlier. This particular platform, GoToWebinar, only allows 1,000 um, for any given session without going into a different level, which we would go to at that point. So the goal here is to provide teaching mentoring, coaching, and networking. And even though I, I said networking last, I actually think that what I believe you'll get most of your value in is through the networking side of this. Um, by the way, I'm going to keep checking here to make sure that Mark doesn't come on. He's due to land just about any time, and I'm expecting him to be coming in here at some point. So, Jeffrey, if you see him come on to the list at any point here of uh, folks, let, let me know. Um, anyway, um, I believe we're going to have that same kind of growth here. And we're going to have topical areas of instruction. And restoration agriculture or colonomic agriculture really is going to be one of the very important ones early on one because of Mark's and my partnership here. So Jeffrey's also one of our tier one um, members at this point. So that's a little description of that. Actually, there'll be a replay of the webinar that I did last night that'll be available probably tomorrow that you can also go to, and I'll talk about where that is. We have a site that a couple of you asked about today called restorationagriculture.smartmember, um, and it's a membership site. 
Um, and we're going to create one that's a lot like this for, um, for the EAT program. And I wanted to comment quickly because this is a question somebody had. As you're looking at this screen, if you notice this one here where it says um, Restoration Agriculture Design Course, Mark Shepard, it says public. That means that anybody can come to this website, whether they're driven there or they find it through a search or whatever, and can, and can see that particular um, lesson, as we call it. This next one, um, you actually have to be a member. Well, to be a member is free. Um, but you do have to join, and, and then that gives us the ability to have you on a list, and we can give you more information about things that are happening. These next three here are actually called Sylvandale 2016. <clears throat> That's actually a paid-for course, and I, I said this last night and the night before. These sessions are not intended to be pitches or sales types, so I'm not going to talk about <coughs> excuse me, that or how you get that. That's something that you can find out from us at restoration agriculture and we obviously are going to pitch that not here but I did want to explain that if you go to this site and you try to enter this you won't be able to get into it it'll it'll say you need to become a member and it's actually not available yet to the public we haven't started selling it we've got a few more pieces of it we're putting together and once that's put together then then it will be available um, it was made available just to those people that attended live and actually like I said we're selling it to other folks um, so really almost everything on this front page is either for members or just a little bit for the public. Um, we then have a, 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 a blog-like session that's available. And this is, I'm showing you this because we're going to do something just like it for the Economic Action Team. And we'll have all these kinds of sessions. Everything that we do, um, we'll put on here and uh, make, them, make them live for you and replays for you. So the replays that will be on, available tomorrow We'll actually probably put them up on the Restoration Ag site until we get the, the EAT site made, and they'll actually be for the members. So you'll just have to join this site if you haven't. But the second part of all these is, is a blog-like structure where we actually can add things. And a lot of these are just draft. So I've just added it because I'm still looking to evaluate it before I decide to make it available. You wouldn't even necessarily see that. Um, I'm looking at it because I'm an administrator. Um, and you can see I actually put it on there twice. So I obviously was liking it. And I, I like Ben Falk. And Ben's somebody that we're sure going to have on as a guest or potentially one of our instructors at some point, possibly a Tier 1 or Tier 2 member. Uh, here's Jeff Lawton and, and David Spicer at his site, D Daniel Halsey, who's out in California, Darby, um, and uh, just a whole bunch of things. So again, some of these are for members, some of these are for the public, and some of them are still in admin form. And then we also have the ability to put on downloads of different kinds. And I don't know whether we actually have any on this site now, um, but once we do, those will be made available. Yeah, we do have some, actually. So um, some of these are available broadly to the public and some of them are more private, so I guess let's say it says here that four of them are all for members, so and they all are. All of these are for members, so you can actually get all of these free as a member. Um, this is actually a pretty cool platform. This, uh, this smart member just started last November, it's still in a beta form. The guy who founded it, his name's Chris Record, he's a friend of mine in the marketing space. If any of you are interested, I can help you figure out how you could have sites like this for whatever your own operations are and however you might want to use for teaching and so on. 
So I'm killing a little bit of time here, actually, until Mark gets in. Um, I'm going to open this up for questions a little bit. And then, Jeffrey, what else do you have that you might chat about, tell everybody about that uh, would be relevant as it relates to what we're doing with Restoration Ag right now? I'll chime in um, as I see necessary, but at the moment, I, I think um, it would be nice to go into questions. Yeah, so throw some out there. I, 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 put, I open up the, the question box so I can look at it. Like I said, I'm expecting that, that Mark will get in here sometime in the, the near future. Um, again, I'll, I'll, I will give a little warning. It's possible that he's really delayed and he may not be with us. I hope he is. I think he's going to be able to be. Um, you never know when you're flying these days. I, I, was, I flew from Denver to San Diego on Monday in the evening, and our weather had been beautiful all day, and all of a sudden this little thunderstorm came through. Probably lasted 15 minutes, but it delayed flights for two to two and a half, some, some flights four hours, just because it shut down the airport right during the rush time when everybody was trying to land. So I'm going to look up the questions here and see if there's anybody's gotten anything that they've put on here. Again, if you don't know, look over on the right-hand side of where your screen is. That's where you can put questions in. I'm not seeing any right away. Um, well, I, I will add, while you mentioned flights, um, one of the issues that we had, actually the days that Mark and Jen were flying in and out of France for the European Agroforestry Conference. Um, there were strikes <laughs> by the airline and the train people both days, so that made, uh, made it a little tricky to both get to the airport and then uh, be sure that the plane wasn't even going to take off to begin with. So you never know these days as to what, what could cause. Yeah, delays happen a lot of times now. Um, well, let's let's throw out another instead of even questions. Um, why don't you put on the chat, if you would, anybody that's out there, some things that you would love to learn about um, that Mark that we can give to Mark to just be able to put on his list that over the next many many weeks that we do teaching that 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 he could be teaching about uh, or any of us really about anything. Um, let me just talk just a little bit about what Mark's done um, and what we're going to continue to do at my ranch and a little bit about a model that both Mark and I use. I think we both believe this is a great example of economic agriculture and even restoration agriculture and that is that I think we both pretty strongly believe that in the agriculture industry today if you're going to be a farmer that is truly trying to generate business not just have a hobby from your farm that you need to be diversified. That, that monocultures are obviously not good for the land. It's not natural. It's not at all economic. It's not making the planet better in any way. It's not sustainable. It's not regenerative. But even in an economic sense, um, I have lots of friends who are monoculture farmers and they're all losing their rear ends. And these are guys that and gals that are farming a thousand acres, five thousand acres, ten thousand acres. They've been farming for generations, 
And the only reason that they actually stay afloat is by subsidies from the government. So when I say they're losing their rear ends, it's their actual operating income, revenue versus expenses, from their day-to-day -day farming activities isn't working financially. It hasn't for years. If you look at statistics on, the, on a nationwide basis, if you look at revenue versus expense across the line on farming in the United States, the revenue for 2015 will be almost 6% less than the expenses. So across the board, our agricultural industry lost 6% of revenues. The insurance industry, I'm just using that as an example because I know it. Um, I know it well because I used to, be, used to own an insurance company operates a little bit the opposite direction, but to just to show you, because a lot of people know that insurance companies can become very wealthy on relatively small margins. They have 100%, so if their costs are $100, their expenses are $104. So they do lose $4 on every $100 that they make from an income perspective. However, they make money on float, how long they keep people's money, and what are called overrides if they get paid from reinsurers that they use. But the bottom line is there's a very good, wealthy industry that operates just about at a break-even from a day-to-day -day basis. Farming industry doesn't have those kinds of things. We don't have float the right way. We have float the opposite way. Their float is they get paid before they have to issue policies. In the agriculture industry, most of the time, we get paid after we've spent all of our costs in creating a product or a group of products. See, we have got a couple questions. I'll ask those, and I'll, I'll, I'll put those out there in just a minute. Keep looking for Mark coming in here. Um, but we're both diverse. So, um, by the way, I I make money on an operational basis day to day on my 45-acre farm, where on any given point in time there'll be 10 to 12 different revenue sources, and they range all the way from a quarry. Um, that is using natural stone quarrying methods to fishing. And I have two different kinds of fishing income that comes from groups that come there to fish for really recreational purposes, two trophy fishermen. And actually, I won't put them up here, but we had two fish caught, I think it was yesterday, could have been the day, yeah, the day before yesterday, a channel cat that isn't close to the state record. The state record in Colorado is 25 pounds, but this thing was probably in the... 17-pound, seven, 18-pound eight, range, and a smallmouth bass that really probably was pretty close to the state record um, in our pond, or in a series of ponds that we have. We also have income from a chicken farm, and we, have, we make income there three different ways, um, from eggs, and from meat birds, and from chicks that we sell also. And we have about 1,000 birds. That little business nets about $8,000 a month in revenue. Um, very good business right now. They're not all so good, though. We had a market farm that we ran all last year. Um, had probably equivalent of three full-time equivalents working on it, and yet it lost money, a lot of money through the year. Probably lost $40,000 over the course of its first year. And we actually decided to uh, not do it again this year because we're going to much more of an agroforestry approach that Mark's helping develop for our operation. 
and away from a typical market type of a garden type of a farm, which, by the way, was about two acres in size. Mark does a lot of the same things. He has a winery on his property. He has multiple different kinds of crops. Jeffrey, talk a little bit about you know better than I. What are all the different kinds of, of uh, production that Mark does that can generate revenue from for him? Hello, and he'll be able to speak to some of the uh, smaller details, just as like herbs and cut flowers and things that he's done over the years. But the main things um, are raising pigs. There are people raising cattle on the farm. By the way, I think we might have Mark on here. Mark, is that you? I think he came in as me, and I was not seeing him on here. Mark, if that's you, maybe jump in real quick if you're on your phone. Because it, it's showing me on here as an attendee, and I'm not. <laughs> so, uh, I think he has my login information. Well, let's just wait. He'll be hearing, and I'll, uh, um, I'll see him. Come on. Keep going, Jeff. Sorry. Apologize. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, so the primary crops that he has grown are chestnut, hazelnut, and apple in combination with various uh, alley cropping plants. So he grows asparagus and acorn squash primarily in the alleys as well as doing some um, various cover cropping mechanisms, which we will be talking about. Here, here, by the way, I think I'm showing one on the screen right now, but it shows his alley, one of his alleyways, um, yep. his, which is that you're seeing the asparagus there in the middle and the alleys of the, of the agroforestry outside of it. And asparagus is a great crop to use. It's a perennial vegetable. Um, and delicious. High profit, by the way, not a, a commodity, really. And um, again, if you can produce it locally, pretty much anywhere you can produce it locally, you can outcompete whatever Whole Foods might be bringing in from Mexico or here in California. I, I'm just south of what is, quote, the breadbasket in the United States. That's what most people would call it. It's not, though, because it's not going to be around. In, in, Pretty much everybody down here knows that all of the vegetable production in the Imperial Valley, which is where the Salton Sea is, it's just Salton Sea is not 15 miles from me, north of me, is not sustainable. It won't even be happening 50 years from now um, because of um, the degradation of the soil, the lack of water, the salinity that it's being that's being created, and, and all of those things. Um, I am going to uh, quickly just show you an example of something that uh, we put on Google Maps here. We're going to put a different site on, actually. So I'm just putting on something called the Antelope Valley. I'm going to go to Maps here. You can see a picture of what it looks like in this little picture here, um, that's, by the way, that, that's maybe for less than a week a year. Those are, that's when the wildflowers bloom in about March, typically. 
I'm going to put up the map here. Yanel Valley is sort of the center of it is, is Lancaster, which you're seeing right here where my cursor is going around. I grew up there. Um, and that's a long time ago, so uh, I'll, I'll admit it. Um, I was, I'm 63, so um, I was born in Los Angeles, but I moved there when I was one and a half. So I was there until I was a junior in high school. And I grew up um, just about right where that says Antelope Valley, actually, um, on what was called uh, Lorimer. Well, at that time, all of this around here that I'm using my cursor now was... Um, was desert and and except out here to the west and where I'm circling now and I'm going to do a Google hopefully I can do an image of this Google um, Earth image here um, let me see if I can do it right here no that's not where does anybody know how you do the Google change your Google map to a Google Earth image, Jeffrey. Do you know how to do this, or Mark? Um, sorry, I focused on a another task at hand. Um, I'm not sure, but but um, this area out here, where you see it says Willow Springs here, and, and Antelope Valley California Poppy Reserve, and you saw a picture of that earlier. That was all alfalfa fields when I was growing up there. As a matter of fact. We used to have a, f a fair every year uh, over the, um, the Labor Day weekend at the end of the summer. It was called the Antelope Valley Fair and Alfalfa Festival because it's a little-known fact. I'm, I'm making this map bigger and bigger. I'm going into and I'm gonna, it won't move for me now, so um, so you can see Los Angeles. But at, at that time and even still today as we get this smaller in, ah, shoot, keeps coming back to large. Just south of where I was showing just a bit ago in what's called the San Bernardino Valley area was the largest dairy production area in the United States. Most people think that Wisconsin is. It's not. California produces more milk than anywhere else in the United States. And all the alfalfa to feed those cattle came from this area, the Antelope Valley. Well, it was all desert that was turned into center pivot and flood irrigation monoculture, very little rotation. You could sell alfalfa and make a lot of money with it at the time. If you looked at a Google Earth of this today, you know, I, I just, I don't think I can actually get the, um, I must be able to get this somewhere here, collapse the side panel. Oh, here we go. I know where to do it, right down here. So, yeah, this is great. Look at how little of this is green. So, and, and those are pretty good sized fields, probably, um, actually I can tell you as we get it bigger here, um, a section, that's a square mile that my cursor is on right there. So right up here, if you can see the cursor, that's uh, two square miles. Here's some center pivots over here. but. When I was growing up there 50 years ago, every bit of this, all of this, was irrigated alfalfa production. And the reason it isn't today is because it can't support it. It's done. It'll, it'll in a number of many years until some kind of reclamation occurs. This is not going to be any kind of uh, agricultural production again, because 
that we used a non-economic, a non-restorative, a non-regenerative agricultural practice, or they did at that time. Well, the same thing's happening just north of me here now in the Imperial Valley. Oh, I hope Mark comes on. Jeff, you couldn't no. possibly call him. I, I did call him, and I actually have him uh, live right here. So, Mark? Hey, Wayne. Hi, everybody. I've hey, been, uh, we hear you, man. We hear you. I've been doing I've been doing what I can for the past hour to get on. Evidently, my access code wouldn't let me speak. I could only listen, so I've been going on and off and on and on. But we're connected now. Yeah, we are. Well, hey, man. Good to have you. Um, nothing formal. Nothing really formal for tonight. Um, I, one, I just wanted to let let you talk to this group a little bit. I want to let them ask you some questions here as we end up in a 15, 20 minutes, half an hour or so. But why don't you tell us about this install that you were just doing? I know that that was – I'm excited because I haven't heard how it went. You, you expected, as you talked to, told, told us about it at first, it might be one of the more complex you've ever done. Well, uh, it actually relates what we're doing in uh, this part of Kentucky. actually relates to what you were just talking about. If you think about the whole Central Valley and that whole, uh, whether it's alfalfa or produce that's been, been uh, grown there for the past however many years, absolutely critical dependent on irrigation. Uh, I don't know exactly what the average rainfall in that particular spot is, but with uh, appropriate landscaping techniques, you can actually harvest and concentrate. You can't make it rain any more than it will, but you can take what rain does fall, concentrated in the production areas, and get increased productivity. And so the situation uh, that we're working on the install right now, the farm, uh, when it was homesteaded by Europeans, was savannah. So there was wide space oaks, uh, hickories, and pecans with grass underneath it. On the flatter bottomlands, they grew uh, corn and beans and tobacco. And on the hills, they grew uh, they raised cattle, they um, grazed cattle. Around World War II, from what we can figure, was when the farm was abandoned. And all of them, these rolling hills with uh, large oak trees and grass underneath began to grow up with brush because there was no more fire, no more uh, serious grazing going on underneath. This landowner purchased it about 10 years ago, um, and he's surrounded by two different insults to his property, one being big ag. The fields around him are getting larger agricultural fields. It happens to be uh, about 175 acres of uh, land catchment uh, watershed that drains right through the middle of the Bay Acre parcels, which is right too. There also happens to be a lot of development happening nearby, and so farmland is being taken out of uh, at least semi-permeable crop soil and being paved and turned into roofs and so on. So he has a tremendous amount of water that comes right through his property, and in the past 10 years, it's carved channel uh, through the middle of his property. He can no longer access uh, the western 40 acres of his property. And it was somewhat tricky because the, uh, the channel that comes through the middle of, of the uh, farm, it isn't a stream. It, uh, it's purely runoff when there's an inch and a half or two inches of rain and a big torrent coming down it. And in a, uh, in a 25 year rain event, uh, there's approximately uh, 150 cubic feet per second roaring through there. And in a 100 year flood event, there's uh, 350, um, 350 
cubic feet per second roaring through this little tiny channel and it's carving its way deeper and deeper and deeper. So what we're trying to do is to unify the eastern portion of this property, the western portion of this property, make it so that any water coming off the subdivision, instead of carving through the eastern part of this farm and eroding it further, will get uh, gently moved out toward the slopes, will capture several different ponds, and as we work our way back toward the crease in the middle of the western part of the farm, we'll uh, get channels to uh, deal with the overflow. When the flood event comes, we'll capture the overflow and spread it out across the rest of the uh, rest of the property and distribute it through a series of ponds and spillways. And because of the volumes of water and the types of rainfall effects, they're massive thunderstorms. They're not gentle little rains. Uh, the, the system has to be designed, designed rather beefy to be able to tolerate um, you know, a big flood of rain when it happens. So it's a tricky one, but it's uh, essential for this guy's uh, farming survival. He can't, he can't survive without rain, and he can't survive without 40 acres. He can't even access the western 40 acres of the farm. So I'm showing a, uh, a Google Earth map now of the area broadly. Do you have any... Uh, any do you remember at all specifics of where they where you might be from Paducah, from the town and the Ohio River that, that, that it's up there? I just just for everybody's benefit as they're looking here. Well, it's it's uh, just outside of Mayville, I believe it is. It's uh, north north and east a little bit of Mayville, and other than that. I have topographical maps with me. Uh, how, how, uh, how long did it take you to get from Paducah to it so I can get a perspective? You can't go very far north or you're going to be in Illinois. So uh, right. the well, Ohio River is connect is separating. Yeah, it's not north of Paducah. It's north of Mayville. Ah, uh, okay. About 40, about 40 minutes uh, from Paducah. Paducah, okay. Oh, I found Mayfield. I got it. All right. We're, we're pulling that in. Um, all right. Well, I'm just, it's, it's big enough here. People can look at it and kind of see what the area looks like. So what, now, now what, the way you describe that, talk about how your, how your, uh, your days there went. What did you, what did you do? And just, we talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, we use the install process here. So, um, maybe talk about what you what you did while you were there. What are going to be the next steps? Well, what I did while I was there, I got there a day before the excavator was there, and I uh, thrashed around through the property with my laser level and my GPS, uh, finding critical points in the landscape. Uh, there are I'm going to use <laughs> if you can see my fingers, I'm making the quote marks. There are key points in the landscape. Some are actual. Uh, geographical key points, uh, according to USDA terminology and, and PA Yeoman's key line terminology, key points. Well, there are other points in the landscape that are key to figuring out how to uh, capture and redistribute the, the rainfall that, that comes out of the sky. Uh, one of the situations that we had, there was the subdivision area was creating three large erosion channels through the eastern part of the farm that was flooding out the barnyard. Uh, so instead of using the, the uh, key line design key points, we arbitrarily picked a spot uh, 
where if we had imaginarily drawn a line to connect these three different erosion channels, it would connect at a point. So that's a point where we started. We called that a key point. And then we designed the system from there, uh, creating a little pond. So I had to survey out, finding finding significant points, then survey out the system so the excavator could follow along. And uh, some of our, we made a series of terraces, uh, channels and mounds in order to capture the rain. Instead of letting it run downhill, we catch it and run it across the slope, filling ponds along the way, put ponds in low spots. And then we take it out to the edge of a ridge where we make a large uh, horizontal area where the water will then discharge in a sheet across the ridge. So we're taking water from a channel in the valley or a channel, the erosion channel, for example, uh, taking that concentrated channelized water, spreading it out, and then distributing it in a sheet on a ridge, taking it from the valley to the ridge ever so slightly downhill. And so my, my time mostly was running around um, collecting ticks all over my body, surveying out places, and uh, following up after the uh, bulldozer operator, uh, verifying that we have the slope going in the proper directions. So waking up at, waking up at like 6 o'clock in the morning, eating breakfast, uh, working until dark, which down there is around 8.30, 9 o'clock p.m. So you're, uh, you're going to be ready to collapse a little bit when you get home here after this flight. Um, so yeah. let's, um, let's back up a little because I know another thing you wanted to just briefly talk about because it's fresh in your mind and, and I've already told the group that you're going to be teaching over the next many, many periods of weeks about all kinds of things. and You'll have more and I'll be helping you put together slides that we'll be able to show people and, and it'll, you'll be able to relate directly as you're talking about things. But talk about your, your Europe experience. Jeffrey talked a little bit about his side of it, but I'd really like to get your thoughts of, of just the time you just recently had as you were in Europe. and I think you, a workshop you did there, you spoke at the um, European Agroforestry Conference and so on. So give a little bit of your thoughts about that for everybody. Well, one of the neat things about the uh Know, the national level and international level agroforestry conference is the presentations uh, are just absolutely phenomenal. Most of them are by master's students or PhDs uh, or professionals, PhD level professionals, and they follow a very, uh, it's a very scientific presentation formula. It's boring as, as if I was allowed to use profanity, I would. Some, probably some of the most boring stuff that you have to sit through, but it's amazingly significant to what we do as people living on planet Earth and deriving our livelihood from, you know, managing resources. So part of what I want to do uh, in, these, in these webinar sessions is, you know, I, I can speak scientific ease, I have an ecological background, years of experience, I can read through uh, the different abstract papers, listen to the, uh, to the sessions that we recorded, and I believe Jeffrey myself uh, my wife and we recorded most of the uh, of the sessions at the European Agroforestry Conference. I uh, will be having those translated into English, and uh, we'll probably even have them uh, printed uh, print form available for people to, to read. So what I want to be doing is to go through the various different presentations, summarize what it is they were talking about. And, and zero in on the, the really important stuff that they discovered or learned 
because what most of the researchers don't have is the researchers don't have you know, 30 years worth of experience of living this way on the ground, uh, deriving their livelihood by growing, you know, trees and shrubs and bushes and vines and animals and grass, whereas I do. So I can take the ecological knowledge and filter it through, you know, 30 years of practical experience and come up with something that, that uh, really could be uh, quite significant for us as restoration agriculture type uh, farmers. Some of the other things that I liked particularly well was the uh, farm tours. We got to see a variety of different um, operations uh, in France. I went to a operation that uh, uh, ecologically is very similar to what, what I'm working on right now in Kentucky, where it's former savannah. Uh, over there, it's a lot more arid, so the oak trees are a lot smaller. Uh, and same period of time, World War II, it was mostly abandoned. You know, people got killed or went to cities to work in factories. It all grew up with brush underneath. Um, the operator of this family operation, you know, it's a fairly large operation. He's got a machine with clippers on it. It's like a gigantic hand or a gigantic insect mouth. He goes out and he grabs the uh, understory brush, picks it up and runs it through a chipper and chips it into a, uh, into a wagon behind him. He then takes the chips back to uh, his facility. Some of the chips he dries and sells as animal bedding. Some of the chips he uh, partially decomposes in order to sell as uh, landscape mulch. And then some of the chips he even more thoroughly composts uh, and uses the heat from the composting operation to heat all of their facilities and to heat their water. Uh, and then the, the innovation that I thought was the most spectacular was he, he turned his pigs loose into the compost and found out that they were eating most of the compost, compost uh, learned what it was that they were going after in particular, and there any of you who've ever dug in the ground and seen these gigantic, you know, waxy white grubs with brown heads on it. There are particular types of scarab beetles, Japanese beetles being one of them, um, uh, June bugs being another one here in the States. So whatever his particular beetle was, they figured out how to raise the larvae uh, in Tupperware containers indoors. And then once he piles up a load of chips, intensely inoculates a load of chips with these larvae. And after 20 days goes by, they've extracted most of the usable heat from a pile of decomposing. Then they turn the pig loose, and they eat through the pile going after these grubs. Uh, they've even done the nutritional analysis on these, on these grubs and uh, learned that one pound of grubs is the equivalent nutrition of two and a half pounds of grain. So when he's not feeding the pigs in the compost pile, they're up grazing in the pasture. And then they come into the compost piles and turn the compost piles for them. And it, I thought it was a really brilliant integrated system how it linked it all together. That was my favorite. Then uh, we went to a, a more classic agroforestry operation with just rows of trees and grain crops. The fellow was growing uh, various different uh, small grains for seed production. And then the third place that we went to was... Uh, a olive grove with produce being grown, vegetables being grown in between the rows underneath. One of the presentations at the uh, conference that we I sat through was explaining the various different systems uh, in Europe and the systems that were olive and produce were uh, bringing in the highest uh, dollar return per 
uh, surface area of land of any of the agroforestry systems in Europe. And so I got to see one of those. As a produce grower, I wasn't all that impressed with the uh, with the operation. It seemed that there was a lot more things they could do to be more efficient, more productive. But it's one of the top you know dollars per acre in in uh, in Europe, in France, anyways. Oh, did I mention we went to several different wineries? <laughs> that was one of the highlights. Every day, every day we went to at least one winery. Um, which was, might as well uh, went in France to the French, right? You bet. Um, tell a little story. You gave me a great story about kind of a little bit of the opposite side about you were maybe it been a day when you were actually talking and we actually have this recorded. We're going to be able to show this to everybody, but give everybody a glimpse about a guy who was wanting to do something completely different than dealing with what he had growing right on his property, which I think was hazelnut and and blackberries. But tell a story a little bit because it was funny. Oh yeah, that that was actually uh, really frustrating for me. The, uh, the place where we were was embedded in a chestnut, walnut, hazelnut, elderberry, uh, cherries, plums, grapes, uh, blackberries, all all tangled together like a mess. So the guy wants to do permaculture. So he's going to be a permaculturist. So what a permaculturist does is supposed to observe and imitate and interact with nature. So what they did is they cleared out uh, it's about 10, 10 or 15 acres or so of land. 50% of that land is now underneath plastic hoop houses where they're trying to grow tomatoes. Uh, on really poor soil, it's not suited for tomatoes. And it's a cloudier region, and so he's complaining about how it's too cold, the soil is not rich enough. And then he's trial, variety trials of zillions of different um, fruit trees to see which trees will actually survive here. And he was uh, using pigs to, to root out mulberries and blackberries that were, quote, unquote, invading his land. And he was concerned that they didn't have enough to eat because they weren't, they weren't rubbing out the blackberries well enough. And so they were going hungry. And then they kept breaking out and going eating other stuff. And it was just, it was just really strange to me as a person who actually does observe nature and imitates what's actually working. If I went to that property, and like like Wayne says, like you said, we've got we've got video of me talking about these different areas. Uh, I would immediately go to this one particular spot where we where we did a video. We could have we could have harvested oh three or four hundred dollars worth of products on the spot that very day when he wasn't harvesting anything yet from his garden because it's still springtime or his greenhouses. And then I would have managed the system so that we grew chestnuts, apples, hazels, uh, plums, elderberries, grapes. There were uh, I believe either gooseberries and currants in the, in the understory in the shade, and then because there was so much other wood there, we could cut that wood down, inoculate it with various different kinds of mushrooms. All of a sudden, just by working the piece of property according to its ecological reality, we're generating income right away and setting up an ecological system that all we have to do is manage it by harvesting it for eternity. Yeah. What a great, that's a great story. It's going to be a, I guarantee it's an ongoing theme you're going to hear from Mark because I talked about it the other night with this whole economic action team process. You're hearing a doer talk. Mark is first a farmer and second a teacher. And he doesn't teach what he hasn't done. He teaches what he's done. And that's incredibly important to us. And 
we're not going to allow people to come and talk to our team that hasn't haven't been doers or are still doers. And again, you just heard from the guy who just came back from you know early mornings, late nights, doing stuff in the dirt himself and not just going out and talking about it. So that's going to be really important. Um, I want to. Ask everybody now. We're getting close to the top of the hour of our hour here. Please put any questions that you have, um, and, and specifically from Mike, obviously, about the rest of us can answer things at the time. Pretty amazing. Here we are. We've got Mark linking in from yeah. from Chicago to Jeff, who is then going live to us <laughs> wherever we are in the world. Secondarily, and you know, you're you're you're. Audio quality isn't perfect, Mark, but it's not bad. Actually, I'm hearing you just well, so that's kind of cool. I, I will before, while we're waiting for questions. One last thing, because Mark's doing it now, and he had a trouble getting into the. You can actually, when you get your um, registration notifications for these webinars as they come up, and we're doing them every week, um, and you, if you aren't able to be by your computer, you can call in. Um, I think what happened with Mark here is I actually sent him probably my registration or something. We'll get it all figured out over the next week. Um, but that's the way that he was getting in this time. So it didn't work out as well as we hoped. Mark, you were about to say something else. Yeah, they just made the boarding call for my plane, so I've got to go. All right, you've got to get going. All right, well, let's real quick. Anybody, quickly, if you've got questions, throw them in here for Mark. If, 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 if he doesn't answer them now and he's got to run, he's going to run here in a second. Um, We'll answer. We'll make sure he answers them next week, or we'll get him answered here even during the week. Um, I'm not seeing anything coming in right now. Um, Mark, if you've got to run, you go ahead and head out. That was awesome. And just a glimpse for everybody of what Mark's going to be giving us over this. I, I can't, I'll tell you, I'm much more excited about listening to Mark every week than I am about talking myself, even though I enjoy doing that too. And um, I'm a, as passionate as you can imagine about aquaculture. But this is the guy, literally, who wrote the book as they say. So, Mark, head out. Um, we appreciate it. I don't see, uh, maybe, uh, wait a minute, might have, no, nope, no more questions here yet right now. So, thank you so much for taking the time here, and we'll connect in the next couple of days, and we'll figure out how we're going to do everything for next week, and we'll talk about other business stuff. So. And one final statement he wants to say. Yep. Okay, so what I wanted to say is that anybody who's listening in on this, uh, what you can do is look around at all of the people who have written books about permaculture in the whole permaculture space, and you look at all of them and you see which one of them has 30 years worth of experience living this lifestyle, earning their livelihood from doing this, not teaching it, but doing this, uh, and you'll find that there's only one out there, and that's not necessarily bragging. I'm just kind of pointing something out. There's a lot of teaching, people who've learned stuff to teach and teach and teach, and that's their livelihood. I've been living it. And all I uh, all I share is, is what I've done. So I got to catch plane. Thank you, everybody. Hey, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. That was cool how you linked there. So I, I we'll have to figure out how it, next time on the phone with one of our speakers we don't end up having to go secondhand, but it worked. <laughs> so, um, yeah. What time is it, by the way? Let here show you the other. Is it like two in the morning or is it midnight? I mean, it's late. I know it is. For me? Yeah. Yeah, it's 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, that's what I thought. And Mark, not Mark Shepard, but Mark in Bangladesh. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, unmute you for a second. And uh, I'm, I'm actually not wasting time here. We're going to stop in just a few seconds. But um, if you do have any questions, you can throw them in. Um, Mark, you, I'm going to unmute you. 
And anybody else that wants to be unmuted for a second, I can do it. Um, I'm going to unmute Mark real quick. Mark, you're unmuted. Tell everybody what time it is there. Hello. <clears throat> um, hello. Yeah, it's 6.30 in the morning in Dhaka. And what did you do early for the last 12 hours? Um, mostly working with websites. Uh, but you weren't. Hosting. You weren't. You weren't yes. sleeping, even though. No. That was the time. <laughs> so. Uh, no, I didn't. Awesome. Um, yeah, because I work at night and I sleep during the day, so um, yeah, that okay. I, I uh, it became a uh, became a habit for me actually. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's he's amazing, everybody, and um, he's one of the best writers that you'll ever find, and he is so passionate about. This topic, he's learning a lot. He lives in a big city, Dhaka. How many? What's your population there, Mark? About uh, uh, twenty million. Twenty million. So uh, I think we only have one of those in the U.S. that's got that kind of size, and that'd be New York. Although the metro area and Chicago and L.A. are both probably about that size. Jeffrey, you have any parting words for Deb, who's also on? I'm, I just want to say I'm excited about what we're doing here and what's to come and the, the ongoing sessions and who will be joining us in the, the future. Awesome. Let me throw one other thing that we're going to be doing. We are going to be taking notes from conferences and we're going to be using those to, and releasing them to people that we have on the team but that we're also going to be selling them to others. And we're also going to look for note takers and we're going to pay them. So. If you're going to be attending a conference that has anything to do with the economic space, tell us about it in advance, and we'll help you figure out how you can record it, and we can help you do it. And then if you take notes from it, we're going to have a way that we distribute them because we think that's something really valuable. It's not being done in this space right now. So anyway, I think we'll, we'll make it. We'll call it a wrap. I actually took a couple of the, the drugs that the dentist said that I could take. I'm feeling way better now than I did when we started this thing earlier. I don't know if you can see the big gaps in my mouth. There, there's one over right there that you're saying. Um, those are where there's going to be teeth put in here. And actually, we'll have to wait four months now before I go back because they had to actually do a bone graft. And anyway, don't ever let this happen to you <laughs> to where you get and lose a tooth like I did to have this happen. Um, again, everyone, this has been great. Next week, same time, same station. Mark will be here, and he'll be there for the whole time. We'll have slides. Come up with your questions in between. We've enjoyed this. I'm going to stop the recording here in just a second, and I'm going to say goodbye to my staff. But we're going to stop recording now, and thank you live from Yuma, Arizona, and from Europe, and from Bangladesh, and from Paducah, no, Chicago, Illinois, with Mark that was with us. See everybody next week. Bye. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.